Good morning, my name is Taylor. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we come to you today in song and in prayer, and we admit that we are not the ones that are taking the first step towards you, and you owe us nothing, but instead, you have already been infinitely kind in taking the first step toward us. Even as the King of kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials, he's born to be our friend. May you now fulfill your obligation to meet us again by your word and breathe life into our bones that our hearts may leap at the promise of your presence with us both today and in the day to come. In your name, amen. Well, please be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to hear you sing and hear your voices swell as we declare again that Christ is the King. Well, Christmas is approaching and Advent is the season that we set aside to remember the arrival, that's what the word means, of our Savior. And the reason it's on uh, the church calendar and the reason we set aside even these weeks now to remember that is because all throughout history, the people of God have been awaiting people, eager for the arrival of Jesus. And we now hold forth Jesus as our long-awaited Savior and King and join in their eager expectation. Well, I got lost in a cave one time. And it was an easy cave to not get lost in. And I realized I was lost as soon as I was on my belly trying to squeeze through this narrow point to see what was on the other side. And I thought, this is surely not why this cave is so popular. And so I got up and started walking around and realized I didn't remember where I was. I had taken so many deviations from the main trail that I was, uh, well, there was this, there's a feeling of despair. Let's just put it that way. When there's no GPS on your watch and there's no map and the only light that's bouncing on the walls is your own light, the only breath you see is your own breath, the only voice you hear is your own heartbeat. And as I wandered and wandered and wandered, I finally caught this glimpse of a steady light from the mouth of the cave. And it didn't wiggle on the walls, it just stayed there. And I tell you what that little light did for my spirit. I, I was satisfied. I was satisfied with the light over there. I was full of joy at the light that was over there. I'm still in the cave, and I'm looking at the light, and it's enough. And the reason I tell you this story is this, that the light, the sight of the light alone is enough in the wandering. And this morning, we continue working our way through the story of God that we've been in now for uh, the last couple weeks, corresponding to the Advent readings that some of you are doing at home. And we come to yet another family that we wouldn't expect to find. We started with the childless centennial, Abraham and Sarah, and then the adulterous murderer, David and Bathsheba, and this morning our attention is on, once again, the childless and ancient Zachariah and Elizabeth. And this morning is different than the previous two weeks because Zachariah and Elizabeth aren't in the line of Christ. 
Instead, though, they are the ones that see the light at the mouth of the cave and know that the waiting is almost over. So we'll rehearse their story together this morning, and I believe it will become evident to us all that the presence of God is a great mercy that produces great joy in those who wait for Him. The presence of God is a gift, a great kindness that produces great joy in those who wait for Him. That even in the waiting, knowing that He is near, is enough to satisfy those who wait. But before we dive into their story, I have to ask a preliminary question. Why would God ever make himself known in the first place? Why would God ever reveal himself to a human? Why would God ever come to be present with his people? Now, I ask those questions because we live in the A.D. reality, right? That Jesus has already come. He's already lived. He's already died. He's already been raised and ascended. And I think that we take it for granted that he would ever come in the first place. But we cannot take that reality for granted. If we're going to appreciate the light at the mouth of the cave, then we need to first consider that there would ever be a light at all. Because this is the premise of the story today. And so as we start, we need, to, we need to lay the groundwork that it is a mercy, period, that God would ever be present among His people. Now, a fundamental tenet of Christianity is that God can be known, that God can be experienced, that God has revealed Himself. But that is not a given, not even a given in other religions. In Islam, the fundamental tenet is that Allah cannot be known, that you could never know Him, and thus you're prohibited from even describing His character or His work. But here we are, week in, week out, declaring that, uh, that God, Yahweh, is active and involved not merely in creation out there, but in our lives. How can that be? We would be right to be astonished at that. And so we need to start, to understand this mercy, we need to start with this fundamental attribute of God, His transcendence. The transcendence of God means that He is outside of, that He is beyond anything that has been made. He is not something that you find when you stare at a mushroom long enough. He is outside, far beyond our imagination even. And what this means is that we could never construct Him using created things. We could never will ourselves then into His presence or force Him to show Himself to us. Thus, if we are to ever know God, it will be because He has chosen to make Himself known. Now, as the story begins on the first pages in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning... God created. Which is another way of saying that God, in His transcendence, chose under no obligation, without compulsion, to create, to make Himself known. And the intent of this creation is that humans that He made as the crown of His creation would enjoy Him, would know Him, 
would experience him. And as the story continues, though, if that's our assumption at the start, that God would make himself known, that he's invited and brought his presence even to dwell on earth with humans, we turn the page over. And these ones who had the best chance at preserving the presence of God on earth instead, we find, reject him. And the consequence of that rejection, their sin, is that God banned them from Eden's garden, away from his presence. So already, by page three in your Bible, you have two instances where God was not obligated to ever show us the light at the mouth of the cave. And the first happened prior to his creation of humans. God was utterly, completely satisfied in himself, by himself. He needed nothing and he needed no one. And yet it was a mercy that he would choose to create humans to share in that joy. To share in the satisfaction he had in himself. It was pure generosity, pure grace pure mercy that he would create humans who might know him and share in this delight. But in his creation then, he was not merely a spectator. The second instance happened just prior to banning humans from his presence in the garden. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had sinned, exchanging that forever joy with God for a lesser joy exchanging the fountain of living water for a well that would hold no water. And sorrow and wrath filled God's heart, and he was right. Of course, of course, apart from him, the creator, there is nothing but death. So of course, having rejected him, these humans must Die, but the mercy of God shines forth again before we leave the third page of the story. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that the deceptive serpent would be crushed through a child of the woman. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was a promise that none other than God himself would enter humanity as a child of the woman in order to reverse the curse of sin and death. And if that wasn't enough, then in Genesis 3.21, the man and the woman are found in the garden in their sin, naked, and the consequence of their sin had just been pronounced. And God, it says, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first death that entered the human story is not the death of the humans that deserve to die, but the death of an animal who bore the consequence of the guilt and by whose sacrifice they are clothed. And in this, God again mercifully moved toward people rather than away. It is only after they have received this promise of God's future presence with his people again by which he delivers them from the serpent and only after he forgives them and clothes them 
that they are banned from the garden. Never to return to that place. Did they deserve that? To be banished from the presence of God. What had they done to prove themselves to God so that He would treat them with this kindness, a promise of His return? They had done nothing to deserve that kindness. It was simply a mercy. Now we start there because that's where our story this morning starts, because that's where God's story this morning starts. In the world we live in today, the presence of God that we experience in whatever degree we experience is all entirely a mercy. The Advent story then likewise begins there. Ever since that moment in the garden, God's people have been awaiting people, waiting for the serpent crusher, a people waiting for Abraham and Sarah's nation blesser, a people waiting for David and Bathsheba's righteous ruler, and when the pages of the Old Testament then conclude, the people of God now sit in their waiting for 400 years of silence. There are no prophets. There's no word. There's no miracles. There's no promises. Only silence in the cave of waiting. Will God ever come? Will He ever come back to His people? Will He ever remember His promise? Or have we fallen too far for His mercy to reach? And that is when we turn the page in our Bibles to the New Testament. So please, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1. In the historical timeline then, uh, the Gospel of Luke is the one that reaches back furthest into those 400 years of waiting. And it records the first merciful movement of God towards humans in over 400 years. So look at the first chapter of Luke with me. And as we, as we do, we'll discover that through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we encounter again God's presence which produces great joy in those who wait for God. Well, follow along as I begin reading in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. All right, two weeks ago, we opened to the book of Genesis and read a very similar introduction to another very similar couple, Abraham and Sarah. This morning, it is as though what Luke is doing is he is connecting that the promise began through a barren old couple, and the waiting is now concluded with another barren old couple. The most unlikely characters are the bookends of the promise of God's presence. Why would He choose them? 
Abraham and Sarah, you remember, were, were pagans who were able to claim no credit at God's choice to reveal himself to them. Zachariah and Elizabeth, however, what does it say? They are righteous and blameless. They, they keep every law that there is. They could claim credit to be included in the story. They could say, God, you owe us a child. If you really are faithful, if you really are the one that we love and worship, we deserve it. And yet, here they are. Childless, advanced in years. Now, Maybe you identify already with Zachariah and Elizabeth. You feel like you've done everything right, like you've given everything you could give to the Lord, and there has been good that has been withheld from you. You feel like you should be honored or repaid for your faithfulness, and yet for some reason, that which you have been owed, that which you deserve, has been withheld from you. Now that's the pain that Zachariah and Elizabeth sit in. So once again, we meet an unsuspecting couple in the work of God in the world, a family with no children, with no promise of children, and no hope of children, who once again are met by God. Look at verse 8 with me. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, this is Zechariah, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now put yourself in Zachariah's shoes for a minute, okay? Imagine 80 years old. He had prayed for a child for a lifetime. He's served in the temple for a lifetime. He's walked into the room which signifies the very presence of God with humans for a lifetime. And as the years have dragged on, you can begin to imagine. He comes into the presence of God yet again, and he this time expects nothing. What good, he might wonder, is the presence of God? What good is it to be the one assigned to walk in to offer incense and be met by stone-cold silence? Only this time, when he least expected it, God does show up. You have to imagine his surprise and his understandable fear because it continues in verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. His prayer has been heard. For perhaps 80 years, 
praying the same thing over and over, beating the same drum over and over, and finally it has been heard. I don't know about you, but I'd have given up long ago. What use is it? Biologically, therefore, logically, God has already given you His answer. But Zechariah has persisted, so certainly this morning you should hear a strong plea to persist in prayer. And in the answered prayer, the promise for them, notice verse 14, is a threefold rejoicing. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For some reason, God is determined to show up. And in his mercy, his presence is now going to give Zechariah and Elizabeth that most elusive gift joy. Now the the fundamental detail, the one that's maybe most perplexing is that this, this child will be set apart to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, that this people would not be found asleep. That when God, when God finally comes, this people would not have forgotten him, though he had been silent for 400 years. And it says, he will go before him. Who, who will go before who? This child will go before the Lord. And he will do that. He will go before the Lord their God in the spirit and power of Elijah. So so we now know that the child we're about to meet is not the serpent crusher. He's not the righteous ruler. He's not the nation blesser. But he's the child that will be the light at the end of the cave. He is not the light. But he announces that God has come. The time of waiting is nearly over. And it will be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And you're right to scratch your head a little bit about that one. But Zechariah did not scratch his head. Because Zechariah remembered the very last words that were ever spoken by God in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, God says, before this period of silence, He says... Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So the people of Israel were anticipating that there would be one who would come who would once again speak as the prophet Elijah spoke in the power that Elijah spoke with, who looked like Elijah, wearing skins and wandering in the wilderness who in fact would be Isaiah's voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that fulfillment is taking place now in this child. John. And Zechariah, I think, uh, is right to, to, to doubt. He's right to disbelieve, Okay. 80 years I've been praying this, and now you show up, and it won't even happen. It can't happen. Well, read with me in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak 
until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah doesn't believe it. But it's unbelievable. You remember Abraham and Sarah also didn't believe it. And when, when they didn't believe it, what did they do? They laughed. And now it's as though God is preempting the laughter and saying, you're not even going to talk. I know you don't believe me. And you will be silent now. You won't laugh. You won't even speak. So instead of laughing at God's promise, Zechariah um, invents sign language or uh, charades in this period now of waiting. And sure enough, as God promised, Elizabeth is with child. And we have to pause. The Luke pauses to note God's kindness to Elizabeth. It says God has looked upon her, taken away her reproach among people. It is a great kindness that when God keeps his promises, he does not overlook or forget people like Elizabeth. Well then, as the story continues, six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, the angel Gabriel then visits Elizabeth's relative, and her name is Mary. And Gabriel announces that the Virgin Mary is now with child, and his words to Mary, which follow that announcement, are basically an invitation, saying, Mary, you've got to go check in with your, with your relative Elizabeth. Because he says in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and in this Six month, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing, nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. God has not forgotten Elizabeth. And here's the marvelous thing. She isn't included in Jesus' lineage. She doesn't have some special privilege. God has simply just chosen to set his affection on her. The God who's been silent for 400 years has done the impossible. The light is now seen at the mouth of the cave. So Mary, she goes to visit Elizabeth, and at her arrival, the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy at merely the proximity to this Savior of the world. And the story picks up again in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is by this name. And they made signs to his father. I, I, apparently forgetting that Zechariah was mute, not deaf, but they made signs to him, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? 
for the hand of the Lord was with him. Now it's easy to recognize that the Lord's shown great mercy through his imminent presence with his people and that great mercy produces great joy. You see it here in Zechariah and Elizabeth and those around them. The mercy of God to visit his people produced in them and in those around them a joy befitting not merely the birth of their long-awaited son, but the very presence of God. And in verse 67, Zechariah continues. It says, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies." And from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways." to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And what is happening here in Zechariah's prophecy is really this beautiful uh, tapestry that he is weaving throughout the entirety of the scriptures aiming at the purpose for which this son was born namely to bear witness to that other son the son of God who will soon be born and the language that he uses in verse 77 I just want to highlight it for you the child's purpose is to give uh, is to announce that the one coming after him brings salvation for his people and forgiveness of sins And he will do that. He will save his people because of the tender or compassionate mercy of God. Again, the only reason God would visit his people is because he had compelled himself by a unilateral promise to his people. The language there is of God being moved in his bowels. The center of emotion is driving him to show up for his people again. And in this mercy, light will come to those in darkness and peace will return to his people. What a beautiful, merciful act of God to show up in a real tangible way after generations of silence to an unsuspecting family to include them, to take away their reproach in his purpose to rescue the world. The story of Advent is the story that the waiting, that the longing, The abundance of joy, the waiting is over. God's arrival is imminent. And we sit here then, 2,000 years removed, okay, from this moment. 2,000 years after John the Baptist does prepare the way of the Lord, announcing the coming kingdom. 2,000 years after the Christ child has been born, died, and rose again. 
And we ask the same question that the people of God have asked for thousands of years. Will he ever come back to stay? Will he ever come back to his people? Will the tenderness of his mercy ever show up again? Will the sun ever rise again of the smile of his face toward his people? We go to church, we open our Bible, we pray, hoping to encounter God's presence. And like Elizabeth and Zechariah, we might do all the right things. But so often we feel alone, forgotten. And even in the silence, God is not far off. Even in the waiting, God is not distant. You see, the feeling of being alone and actually being alone are two different things. Because the promise that you have received of the presence of God is infinitely stronger and more secure than the promise that Zachariah and Elizabeth received. For theirs was the promise of the impending, the immediate moment of the presence of God. Yours is the promise of the ongoing presence of God in you, with you, as you go. The promise of Advent is this. Though you may feel alone, you are never alone. Because God is with you and His promise to come again. And so in Advent then, we participate. We share in the joy that God is mercifully present with us. And we anticipate the fullness of joy in the day to come. So I want to outline for you just some of these promises that are yours that God has of his own his own choice made to you the final words of Matthew's gospel so just a few pages back in Matthew chapter 28 conclude with a promise from Jesus the very last words say I am with you always to the end of the age And you look around here, and he's not here in bodily form. Because no, you know that the cross is empty, that the the grave is empty, that he's ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for you. So how is he still with us to the end of the age? How is he going to keep his promise to his people? Well, you are given still a better promise in John chapter 14, again from Jesus' mouth. In John 14, Jesus promises that God himself will dwell within you. He says this in verse 16, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You might say, I really would just rather have Jesus right here. Christmas would be better if he was right here. Jesus disagrees with you and says in the next verse, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
But the promise continues in John 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. You see, just at the beginning of this chapter in John 14, he's already promised his return, which is the occasion that prompts his now promise of ongoing presence until his return. He's just said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? No. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And it is the return of Christ. So his ongoing presence, his imminent return that will bring the satisfaction, the joy that we so desperately long for. On that day, which Revelation 21 describes, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The question that is both implicit and then it's made explicit by the disciples who are hearing these promises then is, well then how do we get this? How are we going to get there? How are we going to get to God to experience the fulfillment of His promises? And it is to that question that Jesus answers in John 14, 6 when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. And it is in this way that the first advent prepares the way for the second advent. It is the foundation of the promise of the second advent. Jesus is coming again and all those who are found in Him holding to His promise will rejoice with inexpressible joy as they dwell with Him again forever. No, we will never make it back to the Garden of Eden as it was in a space but we will once again be brought back into the presence of God forever. And so my, my goal this morning then really is to be as clear as I can that however you feel, you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is with you and will be with you in the fullness in a day that is not far off. My purpose is that you too would be moved to joy when you consider the merciful presence of God and that the joy would break in even now. While you're in the cave, you would be filled with joy because you see the light that is coming. Because some of us are literally barren like Elizabeth and Zechariah. But all of us really feel as a sense of barrenness in other ways. We desperately want a spouse, but we're here alone. We have children who run us ragged, and they're young, or children that run us sleepless, and they're old. Some of us have financial burdens that bring perpetual anxiety. Some of us have uncertainty about our employment. Some of us feel acutely the mistreatment of a spouse or someone close to you. All of us have physical aches and pains. All of us have tears we cry in our eyes or disappointment 
and frustration in our hearts. And so all of us, all of us need Jesus. All of us need Emmanuel, God with us, to show us the light at the mouth of the cave. And God does this. His presence in our lives is the mercy that will produce the joy we desperately want. Now here's the reality. In this life, every sorrow is mixed with joy, and every joy is mixed with sorrow. But a day is coming when the joy will not be mixed anymore, when the joy will be pure and eternal. And the only thing that will change is that God is present forever. We will be with Him. We will see Him. We will know Him even as we are known. So would you believe Him today for the first time, for the millionth time? Again, hold on to the promise because just as He came, He is coming again. Would you join me now as we pray again and again and again for 80 years, trusting that He will show up and answer. Jesus, You are coming soon, and every eye will behold You. But God, today, our vision of Your presence is clouded. And we do depend on You in Your mercy to drive away those clouds that we might be drawn to rejoicing even though our feet are still in the cave. So may You then in light of your first and future advent, bring us great joy as we follow you and experience life together with you. Would you help us, even as we wait in your name? Amen.